1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Erica, a behavioral therapist about transactional analysis theory as related to coercive control and the toxic narcissist. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everybody. I am Brandon Chadwick, and today our guest on our show is Erica. And if you remember Erica, she was actually a guest on our Survivor Story episodes on September 13th, 2021. And it turns out that Erica is also a behavioral therapist. So thank you for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me back. It's really good to see you again.
1: Well, it's always great seeing you. We we got along pretty well when we talked the first time. And we talked for a while after because you are a behavioral therapist. We had a lot to talk about besides just getting along, you know, like two old friends. And today We're going to be on multiple times, but today uh, we're going to discuss transactional analysis theory as related to coercive control. And this is all really uh, interesting stuff, and we're going to learn a lot, and it's a different way of looking at your relationships and looking at uh, the evenness of relationships And another way to spot things or to create boundaries, uh, create uh, just a system of never getting into these things again, but also being able to look back at your relationships and give them a different perspective of everyone's role within them. And it's just a really good learning tool. And we'll be doing today some, you know, grade 10 drama, me doing some acting parts, Erica doing some acting parts on her end. We're going to do our best. Uh, but first, you know, Erica, uh, you know, take us through what you, you know, what, what do you want to discuss first?
0: Well, it- I think I sort of left everything hanging at the end of of the podcast we did in September. Um, I love how you close every conversation with the question. What are, what are some words of wisdom that you would like to leave with other people? And um, even though I was, I knew that question was coming, I don't think I was really prepared for it. And I've done a lot of thinking since then about what has worked for me and what is continuing to work for me in therapy and and recovery from this. And and that's really something that I want to share today. So today talking about transactional analysis is about sharing a counseling method um, that not only helped me, as you say, in the reflection afterwards about what I survived, but more importantly, this strategy was given to me while I was still in it. And that's really become my commitment is um, for those who are still in the relationship and have somehow found their way to this podcast, how can we equip those people who are still in it um, to survive it and to, to? I know I'm going to use the word harm reduction, like to sort of reduce the amount of harm that's done to us until we're able to leave. I'm struck in in by the stories that you've um, found where it, uh, there's this theme where um It takes time to leave. Um, It takes money to leave. Uh, It it takes safety planning in order to know when is the right time to leave. And so what are we doing to help each other better survive that relationship? And there are some people who, because of children or pets or mortgages or whatever, where that narcissist is going to be in their life for a long time. So what strategies can we use that are a good fit? For the narcissistic dynamic, and for me, transactional analysis has really been that.
1: And we're going before we get into the trans trans, and before we get into the transactional analysis aspect of the show, you're going to, I guess, give us a little bit of an allegory, correct?
0: Oh, sure, sure. Did you you forget
1: we were going to do the allegory?
0: No, I didn't. I just um, I wasn't sure how to segue into that, but that's what you're here for. Um, this really speaks to my commitment as someone who is now, I just passed my one year anniversary of getting out of this relationship. And so this is who I am in the allegory. Um, the, it's written by Plato. It's the allegory of the cave, Dante's cave. And, and the story goes like this. There is a group of prisoners who are living in captivity in a cave. They are shackled and chained. They can't move their necks in any direction. They're shackled around the neck. And they're staring at a rock wall, almost like a big IMAX screen. And behind them, there are soldiers, captors, who are parading different shapes that project onto the wall as shadows. And because these captives are chained and can't move, they come to accept that those shapes are reality, that that's reality as it's presented to us. And then, so you might have something that walks across the screen that looks like a cow, and then somebody moves like a cow, and you're like, okay, well that's a cow, or that's a tree, and you you attach those words to these projected images, but it's all false, right? It's the matrix. It's it's gaslighting. It's not. It's not real. But we're we're sl- enslaved, and we don't know any different because we're brainwashed into you know living that way. So the story is that one of these prisoners is released and finds their way up into the sunlight, out of this cave. And as the story goes, um, the man is initially so blinded by the sunlight that he's the only thing he's able to do is to look at shadows on the ground his his head is down and he's looking at the shadows and he's like that's the shadow of a cow that's the shadow of a tree but it's closer to reality than what he had it's actually a cast shadow and then as he acclimates to being in the sun he's able to look at the reflection in the water and go that's a tree that's a real tree and then further along in the healing the prisoner is able to look up at the tree itself or the sun itself and for me, that really has come to represent, um, you know, undoing all of the brainwashing and gaslighting that I experienced, and and beginning to define the world for myself. Now, here's where we're at in the conversation today. In the allegory, the prisoner goes back to the cave because she is concerned about the prisoners who are still there, and. I I am concerned about that. And I know you are too. And so we go back to the cave and we're like, listen, there is a world out there and we want to help everybody be free. The response of those prisoners to the person who goes back is really interesting because in the allegory, they make fun of her. They, They say, oh my God, she's lost her mind. Like, why would we ever leave the cave if that's, you know, that's how we're going to behave once we get out. Like, she's insane now. Look at how she's talking. Look at how she's thinking. Um, and, and some will say, why would you want to leave? Like, we had it so good down here. Why, why just come back and sit down and, and stay? So all that to say, um, my heart, and I, I have many friends right now who are living in situations of domestic violence and coercive control. And it's not my place to tell them to get out or when to get out or how to get out. Not my place. They will get out when they're ready. So in the meantime, you know, all of the guests that you've had on both the the survivor stories and and the Q and A's have been about strategies, not only for recovering after the fact, but for surviving it, if you're still in it. And for me, transactional analysis was one of those tools.
1: And you bring up the matrix. And when you discuss the matrix, and we'll only discuss the original matrix because there is only one matrix, uh, it's, a, it's a social construct. It's a computerized program social construct where they are in there not knowing that they are slaves to a specific system uh, and that they are being controlled within that system. And a thing that they do mention in, yeah, well, I'm not going to go there, but that'll just get too nerdy. Uh, But within that, uh, and, and watching the movie, you're able to actually see the construct. You can see the edges. You can see the box of what it is in. And... When it comes to transactional analysis and all of the things that you gave me, you I'm looking at a chart here. I'm looking at the edges of these boxes. I'm looking at all of these things and how they relate and how everyone's role is in there to make this uh, of control circle work, to make it move, to make it go. And there are, you know, the highest you can kind of go, like the people that are in control. And then there's the bottom of the rung of, yes, they're part of the construct, but they're the ones being uh, controlled. And it's a really interesting framework to, to look at things in that sense, because it's so visual. It's, it's, it's so, tangible and simple in a way it really simplifies things which is what I find interesting because you know that's what people are people are looking for a lot of time these bigger answers in the sense of you know trying to figure out what this person is what the motivations are and what what is this but with this you know we're really talking taking everything and bringing it back down to parental um Controls, nurturing kind of parental patrols, controlling ones, um, middling, which is like adult. And you'll get into it better than I do. And then two child roles and and how these people would interact and how I would uh, interact with someone taking on one of these roles and what someone else's role would be. So it gives these really interesting like parameters that we can hold on to, look at, and – um Learn from in the sense of, Am I acting this way? Is this person acting this way? And and you can go through this whole entire uh, process and be like, Okay, this isn't even. And look at it in the sense of um, not in the codependency way, because it also helps with codependency. And not look at it as, Well, what's even and what's not even? How am I overdoing things or how am I not or how am I underdoing things? In, In this way, it actually gives you. Uh, the idea of well, a, a, you know, a parent is this way, a child is is this way, a regular adult is is this way. So you can see the scale. You know, it gives you the idea that you know there's a scale here, and that everyone's role is somewhere on this scale. And that's more tangible than saying, well, am I overdoing things or am I underdoing things? Because at that point, you can. When you think of things in in your mind that way, you'd be like, well, am I overdoing things? What is overdoing something? Um, You know, your brain can get in the way of that analysis. Uh, So, anyway, I've rambled on long enough here and probably been very vague for a lot of people. So, you get into the nitty gritty of just what I talked about and just give us a definition right now of transactional analysis.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, what I love about what you did is—is is it just sort of um, whet our appetite for the model itself? Uh, you explained it really well. So let's let's just make it really concrete between you and me. Um, transactional analysis would say that in this conversation right now, in this Zoom call, there are actually six people present. That in every interaction between two two adults, there is there are six available roles. You have within you the option of behaving in a parental role towards me, behaving in a childlike role towards me, or staying solidly in your adult self. And I have the same choices. The purpose of, I'm gonna call it TA from now on. The purpose of TA therapy is to strengthen our skills as the, in our adult self, so that we come to every interaction occupying that role, and the characteristics of the adult self, the hallmark of that role is boundaries, that you solidly know who you are and what you stand for, and that you are ready to defend those boundaries for yourself. That, that's the role of an adult, because, and I'm assuming, Brandon, that in this conversation right now, that you are your adult self with me. So let's just check and make sure that that's the case. If you can affirm that you see me as your equal, if you can affirm that you believe you are responsible for your own choices and their consequences, and if you believe the same about me, that I am responsible for my choices and their consequences, it's not your job to run interference on my problems nor is it my job to run interference on your feelings. Your feelings are valid, but it doesn't have to be because of something that I did. You are you, I am me, we're both okay, we're both equal. And if that's the case, then we're we're on the level. We're both functioning as adult to adult. Is that the case today?
1: Hi, my name is Brandon, and I am an adult, and it's nice to meet you.
0: Hi, Brandon, my name is is Erica and I'm an adult and it's nice to meet you too. (laughs) Now I have, I, I have a confession. Yes. When we recorded our episode in September, you and I had, I don't know, a half hour conversation before we got started. And I was very much my 50 year old self in that conversation. We were equal. I was level in my voice. I felt confident about what I was doing. And the minute that you hit record, and said, Erica, the floor is now yours. I responded to you like a five-year-old. And if you go back and listen to it, you'll hear it. I say, thank you, Brandon. And I sound like a child. Now, the behavior is a lot less important than the mindset because it's not about what you hear necessarily. It's about what's going on in my brain. And what happened in my brain is the minute you hit record, I felt like my narcissist was in the room and I functioned for seven years in that relationship, like, not like a child, but like a subordinate. I was subordinate to her. So, and I think part of that dynamic when I responded to you as a child also had to do with your position of authority, that you are a podcaster, you have created an extraordinary platform. Um, and I am used to submitting to authority. Um, in my episode, you can hear that you know I was raised Mennonite. I am a woman in a Mennonite culture that subordinates women. And then I ended up in a relationship with a narcissistic woman who was all about subordinating me. So all that said... If I slip somehow into a childlike role, I will tell you. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to stay in my adult self because this therapy has been so effective in in helping me do that. So um, let's talk about the dynamic. Transaction is a word that describes, um, you and I are having a transaction right now. Any back and forth dialogue is a transaction. And the analysis piece, as as you've described around the matrix, is, is about, you know, identifying the edges to this thing and analyzing um, the dynamic. And for me, that's really been, that was an important part of surviving the relationship while I was still in it. Um, this transactional dynamic goes on subconsciously all the time, all day, every day. But what therapy, TA therapy does is it brings it to consciousness so that we can intentionally engage in it and and to know what Game is being played. And there's a whole series of books in TA therapy having to do with the games people play. So, the reason why I think TA fits so well within the narcissistic dynamic is because there's somebody who thinks they're superior and who thinks that you're inferior. Or, you know, as we heard in Soleil's episode yesterday, um, where She's forced into a parental role because she's married to a child. Um, so I think it's a model that fits the coercive control dynamic really, really well. This, this for me, is the really interesting part. Um, ideally, we want to talk to each other adult to adult. But if someone slips into the parent role, that creates discomfort and we've all had that experience right where we're trying to be you know I'm just I'm just an adult and all of a sudden somebody comes along and they try to parent me right like a domineering parent or even a nur- even a nurturing parent irritates me but i'm I, like i'm i'm in charge of my own life thank you the the way to smooth that transaction because it's now uncomfortable now there's tension because i'm 50 years old and you're parenting me the only way to smooth that transaction is to to name the elephant in the room and to say, "Um, I don't appreciate what you're doing. Um, I'll decide that. Thank you. And to invite that person to step back into their adult role, which as we know with a narcissist is not likely to happen. Or there's another option to smooth that dynamic and to ease that tension. And that is for you to slip into the child role because the parent child dynamic even though it's unhealthy is is comfortable that like that, that there has to be a child in order for you to be a parent. So I think maybe now might be a good time for us to do a script.
1: All right, so uh, we're going to start off with uh a script here that says Emma it's called Emma took her pants off and this is something that uh, happened with you.
0: It did. And I think the things to notice, like, um, this is the analysis. So be listening for my attempts, Erica's attempts to be an adult and to listen for Andy making a shift into a parental role and then be listening for um, the tension that that creates in me. Like it becomes an uncomfortable dynamic. And the only listen for my attempts to... Get her to be an adult again, and then listen for the moment when I shift into being a child. And then maybe be asking yourself, what was Andy's payoff in this game? It's a game. So, all of the, that's the analysis piece. So, that's the filter to be listening for. This is the context. It was a stormy Sunday night. I had just learned on Facebook that half of my town was without power i have a report due in the morning and so i'm really frantic to finish before i lose my power um, andy and i have been in a relationship for six or seven years and we have never lived together full-time um, i moved to this community on the promise of a future fake and she's never made good on that promise and so she's often looking for excuses for why she stays in Toronto and doesn't come to live with me. So on this evening, Andy's in the city. Emma is a friend of ours. And <laughs> Emma's just a party waiting to happen. She is a good time. Um, she's spontaneous and fun, but she also has a really chaotic life. Uh, she can be really irresponsible and She is completely imposing, like she does not respect anybody's boundaries. So that night, I was trying to get my report done, and I got a text from Emma. Uh, She wants to charge her phone because she's without power. I ignore Emma's text. So Emma texts Andy. And because I am so well trained by my narcissist, I immediately respond.
1: And, and I'm going to play the role of Andy.
0: Yep. And this comes by text. So you're reading Andy's text.
1: All right. I'm Andy. Here I go. Hey, Emma's trying to get a hold of you. I know you saw her text.
0: <laughs> Busted, LOL. Uh, to be honest, I, I just don't need the distraction right now.
1: What are you saying? That Emma is a, that Emma is a distraction?
0: I'm, I'm not saying anything, Andy. I just I just need to get this report done.
1: Jesus. Okay, I'll let her know.
0: No, no, Andy, that's not your job. I'll respond to Emma. So then I convey to Emma that I'm focused and I'm not there to party. I, I tell her it's okay. She can come and charge her phone. But I said, I am working. I will not be visiting and I don't want any booze in my house. Um, when, when Andy is home and Emma is over, we drink constantly and I'm really trying to cut back. So I say, I do not want any booze in my house. Emma asks how many of her dogs she should bring. And it's chaos when her dogs come. And so I said, just bring one, just bring the little one. So she shows up with all three dogs, a bag of booze, her son, and all of his electronics. So I settle back into work and Emma makes fun of me in front of her son. And then
1: Um, then I'm Andy.
0: Yeah, Emma leaves and then I get a text from Andy.
1: And I say, so how did it go with Emma?
0: It was fine. She, She left a few minutes ago.
1: What? No chaos? Nope. It was all good. Oh come on, there must have been something.
0: Nope, it was fine.
1: Guess those big important boundaries weren't that important, hey?
0: Oh, I I think my boundaries are important. I'm I'm just saying that it worked out.
1: She sure can be a dumpster fire, hey?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, It was busy for sure. Um, All three dogs were here. It's pouring outside, so the floors are a muddy mess. And, you know, she brought her kid. And (laughs) this is the funny part. I guess it was a little hot in here because I, I turned around and she had her pants off. Like she was sitting on the couch in her underwear.
1: Oh, my God, Erica. I knew this is how you'd respond. You've just been gossiping with the neighbors. No, wait, please. And you wonder why I stay in Toronto? you think I want to live like that, judging our friends?
0: Wait, I'm not judging these are just the facts. The floor is muddy She brought Leo and all three dogs and alcohol.
1: Ah, uh, right, yes, I can see how that would be a problem for you. little Mennonite with the drinking problem. Well, I mean, you know that
0: I'm trying.
1: I know you are, honey, but you can do better.
0: I'm really trying. I'm sorry. Please come home.
1: End scene.
0: End scene. <laughs> okay. How did,
1: so I did I do? How did I do?
0: You were awesome, I, I was.
1: I was terrible, but thank you.
0: You <laughs> were great,
1: but you know what? You lived it.
0: I did live it. That was an actual conversation. So in the analysis of that conversation... Could you see where I shifted into could you see where I tried to maintain being an adult? Uh,
1: where you tried to maintain being an adult? Well, you were trying to maintain being an adult. Um, so when I became, I guess uh, uh, what's the best way to put it? Uh, when I guess became like more of a domineering parent, you tried to stay in your adult role. So I guess when I was at, guess those big important boundaries weren't that important. Hey, when I really started to question something or Mm -hmm. like really control something, uh, you know, you were like, oh, I think my boundaries are important. I'm just uh, saying it worked out. Um, You were trying to be an adult there. And then after that, uh, I or Andy says, uh, she can sure be a dumpster fire. Hey, and, and that was more of, in, in my opinion, uh, or just uh, the way it came off as she tried one way and now she's um, using a, another way to kind of go about things to kind of get you on your side to let your guard down a little bit. Um, And then once your guard is down, then it can... You know, it's a really odd, it's a really odd tactic. Once she she gets your guard down, you start to kind of be free flowing yourself and she's waiting for the moments where she can take kernels of truth about what you're saying and then really flip it. And when she flips it, she then becomes... You know, you have, we have down here, like there's a controlling parent and there's a nurturing parent. And what you wrote down here is fake nurturing parent. So it's like a condescending version of a controlling parent, um, in, in that role. And once that happens and she traps you in that, um, when she traps you with your own words, And then she has you. And in a way, you know she has you. And then she flips the switch on how she reacts towards you. And as soon as she goes into that really controlling parent, because the first time it didn't work, but she was able to get herself back, figure out how to, you know, it's like she cast a reel. Oh, it didn't work. Um, hold on. Maybe I have to cast this in a different way to make it look like this isn't here to hook the fish, but it is, it's just a different type of lure. And she used it, used it, used it. And then after she kind of got you around that hook, she put out the real hook. Once she got it there, boom, you grabbed onto it. And all of a sudden you became a kid.
0: Right there you said a thousand things and we could stop right here. You nailed it all. And so in terms of our self-protective strategies, um, one of the strategies I learned through TA therapy was identifying what my hooks are. Because in between these conflicts with our narcissists, we make promises to ourselves that we are never going to get in that kind of a power struggle again. And I can't believe I fell for it. And I'm, I'm going to stand strong and never going to do it again. And then, like you said, they just reload the hook with a different kind of bait until they find the right one and you take the bait and you're in it again. And so one of the strategies for knowing um, how to stay out of it is knowing what your hooks are. Um, as, as we've discussed before, I am an Enneagram type eight and my hooks are just written into that description. Like if you suggest at all that I'm not strong, I will, I will engage with you because I need to prove to you that I'm strong. I don't want to be seen as weak. Um, Or, you know, when I say something about alcohol, I really struggled with alcohol in this relationship, December 19th, one year sober.
1: Congratulations.
0: Thanks so much. Um, But you know, if I mentioned alcohol rather than um, admitting how much we and our all, our whole, all of our friends drank, um, it was like, yeah, you know, you're really struggling with that. And then to throw in something like being Mennonite was like, you know, Jesus wouldn't approve, <laughs> you know, like there's sort of that moral condemnation and all of those things automatically subordinate me it, in my own head. Like I I submit to that very quickly and I feel ashamed and I feel inadequate and and I adopt that role pretty quickly and then I'm apologizing and making promises. Um I want to point out something else in this dynamic. Another way to create a smooth transaction if if Andy moves into the parental role, the parental role is also very judgmental of other people. And I'm really embarrassed to say this but Andy and I built a bit of a hobby around gossiping about our friends. And you, you don't gossip unless you're in a parent role, like you see yourself as superior to other people and you criticize their lives and you judge them. And I was so desperate for an activity where Andy and I felt close and fun-loving and easy and comfortable that she would bitch and complain and criticize our friends and when I, I mean, I didn't notice this consciously, but when I joined her in that, when I added to the narrative about how our friends, you know, how Emma is a dumpster fire, she was she was gentler with me. She was affectionate with me. And that was the reward. Like my behavior, I was conditioned to criticize people that I actually love and respect. And so that was a way of creating a, a smooth, transactional dynamic between us was for us both to occupy the parent role and judge everyone else the the horrible thing about that is is that then becomes leverage because all Andy has to do is go to Emma and say yeah Erica said you were sitting on the couch in your panties like oh my god you wouldn't believe you know she said she said you sat on the couch like a fat slob in your panties And like you said, because there was a morsel of truth to that, if Emma comes back to me and says, did you say I was a fat slob sitting on your couch in my panties? And I, like, I can't lie. And I would say, okay, well, I said the panties part, but I I didn't, I would never call you fat. I didn't say that. But there's that morsel of truth. And I mean, what's a person going to believe? It's like, well, Andy told me what you said. And what's going to sting more? Like, what's going to hurt Emma more? The fact that she sat in her panties or the fact that she thinks I called her fat, right? Like that's the, she's never going to forget that. So my point is, is that the bait to gossip about our friends then became the leverage that was used to turn people against me. Wow, that that's complex, isn't it?
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, and I think that is really important to this conversation. This is complex. And I'm really scared by some of the the counseling strategies, the people who are unfamiliar with narcissistic dynamics and course of control, who um, I mean there's one field of thought that is sort of like assertiveness training, like they'll say, "Oh, you know you're living with a bully. You need to stand up to the bully. I think that grossly underestimates the complexity of arguing with a narcissist. Like it's not anywhere near that simple. And I think it's rather insulting. Uh, When I listen to the survivor stories that you've collected, like there's no shortage of strength in these women and men who have survived narcissism, (laughs) like they're strong and outspoken, but they choose when to push back because Sometimes it's a matter of safety. And and so I really have no time for the assertiveness training that says, you know, you need to just go home and stand up to your husband. Um, That's how people get killed. So that for me, TA, and there's many models that work. This isn't the the holy grail, but um, for me, this is a model that absolutely describes someone who thinks themselves superior to me. Someone who is totally about playing a game. Someone who is leveraging what they know to be my motivations or my hooks and and gives us a framework for recognizing it when it's about to start happening and for getting out of it once it's happening. And that's what makes it a good fit for me.
1: So before we get to another example, do you want to go through the transactional analysis chart?
0: So, um, the characteristics, as I said, of an adult are the ones that we agreed to when we started this conversation, that we see each other as equals and in responsible for our own choices. Um, it's literally the opposite of codependency. Um, the, the role of parent can be expressed in one of two ways. The domineering, overpowering parent, controlling parent, or the nurturing parent, which isn't inherently bad. Like there are times when you slip into a nurturing parent role for good reason. Um, but in the hands of a narcissist, the nurturing parent is, is just as much about course of control. Um, and I'll just give an example here before I move on to the child. Um, Andy's nurturing parent behavior um, was expressed in things like housing um, and food and safety, and so it comes across as generous. It comes across as caregiving, but it's all about control. Like it looks like she bought me a house. It, it, that's what it looks like. First of all, I paid for it. I I renovated it, thousands of dollars, and I was just Hansel and Gretel. She she bought a house to hold me hostage, and she never came. <laughs> like it, but it looks like that of a nurturing parent. Or when it comes to to food, um, Andy is a chef. Um, A a feature of our relationship was um, Andy led a duplicate life. She had two wives and two houses and two cars and four dogs and two campers. Um, Everything was duplicate. There was one set with me about four hours out of Toronto. And then there was her life with wife number one in Toronto. And she controlled both of us with food. And so it looks like a nurturing parent when someone puts a plate of food in front of you. So, you know, I would be on a keto, following a keto diet. She'd be making eggs benedict for breakfast. She would say, would you like it on a muffin? And I would say, no, thank you. And I'd come to the breakfast table. And I mean, the woman could plate food like nobody, like it was gorgeous. So piled high on this muffin was sausage and egg and drizzled with hollandaise and arugula and this beautiful mound of it, it's stacked right when that means that the thing i said no to is at the bottom of that stack and it's gorgeous what am i gonna do she puts the food in front of me I'm like oh my god this is beautiful and then i say i didn't really want the muffin. Well, she grabs the plate out of my hand, she slides the egg off, she throws the biscuit into the sink, she slams the plate back in front of me, and it's coercive, or it, it's, it's disguised as the nurturing parent who's now angry that I rejected her breakfast. So nurturing isn't always what it chalks up to be. One more example, having to do with safety. Um, Andy's safety requirements were entirely about control. Uh, particularly how we how we raised our dogs. Um, oh my God, like the jackets and booties and sweaters and raincoats and like sunscreen, not kidding. Like they, they were just, we were always dealing with impending danger and imminent death when it all these safety precautions. And I know that it was control because when she was alone, she didn't do any of those things. So at first I was like, oh, she's highly anxious. I better do this so that she she doesn't, you know, she feels safer. She didn't, she didn't feel unsafe at all. It was just about putting me through the hoops. So all that to say, the adult role can express itself in one of two ways, just as the child can express itself in one of two ways. There is the, 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 the I'm going to say the rebellious child, the child that pushes back. And so you can, you can see how that would be the case if you had a person acting as the domineering parent and then having someone act as the rebellious child. And I am an Enneagram type eight. I am a Leo and I was born to my father. So I, <laughs> you want to talk pushback? I'm your girl. So we were often in that dynamic where she was pushing back as a domineering parent. And I was re- like, who the fuck do you think you are? Like I, I acted like a, a kid who was just rebellious. And then the, the other role, and this is the role that I slipped into when I was defeated was that of, um, I think TA calls it the adaptive child, but it's, it's the subordinate child. So how will you go ahead and describe some of the specific features of those roles?
1: All right. So from uh, let's start off with the controlling parent. And these, for the controlling parent, these are the words that you might hear from them. Should, must, don't, good, bad. The tones that come from them are harsh, abrupt, authoritative. They're gestures or mannerisms, finger-pointing and arms-crossed their facial expressions rolling eyes rolling eyes sorry furrowed brow scowling so that is what everyone sees as a a controlling parent and one that is it's not confusing about what they are and what they're trying to do and then next you have the nurturing parent and words for the nurturing parent are don't worry let me help you they're there Uh, tones that might be used, soothing, consoling, and loving, gestures or mannerisms, which could be a pat on the arm, nodding, and nodding encouragingly, and facial expressions can be smiling, proud, and like proud eyes. So when it comes to the nurturing parent, a nurturing parent can also be controlling, correct? And they can use all of these as a form of control. So this is the covert narcissist right here, uh, the nurturing parent, where um, they're especially during the, the love bombing stage of everything. This is what they're they're showing you. They're showing you concern, as in, in love, but it's really done as a form of control. Whereas you know, eventually they'll morph into the controlling parent. Uh, after you're locked in, but at first, you might see them as a nurturing parent. And next up on the list, we have adults, which is how you want to come to conversation. And the words used here are how, when, where, I understand. Their tones are calm, clear, and even. Their gestures and mannerisms are level eye contact in an absence of fidgeting and their facial expressions are open and thoughtful. And this is really interesting. You know, facial expressions open and thoughtful probably means they're listening. Um, Obviously eye contact, they're looking straight at you. They're not thinking about what they're going to say next. They're not thinking about how they're going to comfort you. Um, They're really present in the moment. Uh, Their tones calm, clear and even you know, again, you feel like you're being listened to and with words of how, when, where I, I understand, it's validating, uh, I understand, and it's inquisitive, it's uh, curious, and it's not looking you at someone who's above them or below them. They're looking at you trying to understand and get to know and, uh, you know, contact and be with you on the same level that you are. So that is an adult kind of conversation. And that is where you want to be. And then you have next, uh, you had it as the rebellious child. And the words here are, I wish, wow, love and hate. So real teenager, you know, angsty, uh, here, Erica, the angsty teenager. And then the tones are joyful, noisy, energetic. So obviously they're, you know, just like a uh, adolescent, you know, they're bouncing off of things, uh, gestures, mannerisms, things are exaggerated, movements are exaggerated. There's, uh, you know, they're uninhibited. Um, and then facial expressions, bright eyed, smiling, like smiling freely. So you have here like a regular, not a regular, but like a uh, quote unquote normal um, uh, teenager type who, uh, you know, can fight back and then be, you know, has maybe an extreme of emotions and is ping ponging off of things and. Um, has a black and white thinking possibly in the sense of loving and hating things. And in a real sense, emotionally stunted in, in in that, in that sense, uh, as far as kind of the role that they take on they they're in a certain place of their life of how they're reacting to things.
0: And if I can interrupt there, because it just reminded me of something, um, You know, in an actual child or an actual teenager, those are developmental stages, right? When we move from a place of concrete thinking and black and white thinking and egocentric thinking, those are valid developmental stages and we grow out of that. One of the interesting things about trauma theory is that we become developmentally stunted. And so, um, you know, this TA therapy really speaks to uh, the homes and the the childhoods that we've come from and the possibility that we ourselves might be stuck there or even the narcissist might be stuck there. But the other thing I want to say about the descriptors you just shared about that particular child is there's not anything inherently good or bad about any of these roles. They serve purposes and if we can consciously move into them, um, you know, I'm I'm going to say this again, sorry for those who don't know this reference, but as an Enneagram type eight with a seven wing, my seven is completely childlike and playful and innocent and happy. Um, and, And so there's not anything inherently wrong about that. It's about being... Uh, conscious about the movement throughout this model and, and in whose presence we're doing it. And stupidly I have, I have been far too vulnerable with the wrong people. So it's about growing into that discussion about when and how to be childlike.
1: And then lastly, and not least, we have the adapted child and the words for the adapted child are please, sorry, I can't, Try. Tones are complaining, surly, monotone. Gestures and mannerisms, head tilted to one side, fidgeting, slouching. Facial expressions, pouting, downcast, and not engaged. And this is someone, this type of child to me, off the top of my head, would be someone who's obviously subordinate to. Uh, how they have been raised, maybe voiceless in a, a lot of ways, obviously complaining is them trying to kind of get a voice, but be, like when you 're slouching at a very young age it 's mean you 're carrying something on you, and like you might be you know, being domineered so much that you start slouching, your body is telling a story. Um, you know, fidgeting, it means that you're, wherever you are, isn't stable. You know, you're always thinking of moving around. You might be getting uh, yelled at in certain things like that, uh, head tilted to one side. Let me tell you a very quick story. If I can, when I went to do somatic work, um, during the process of it, the person I was, who was my coach, through this process, notice that when I tilted my head to one side, that I was off in la la land and that I wasn't listening anymore. I wasn't doing anything. I was off in my own fantasy world. So we had to trace back what happened in our conversation to make my head tilt to the side. What was that trigger And then be like, okay, that's when it happened. So to then eventually, if I catch myself with my head tilted to my side, it means I'm in la-la land and something caused me for that head tilt to happen. And then to find my wake, go backwards from there. And it was just one of those things that it was a defense or coping mechanism when I was younger to whatever was happening to escape. And so it's really interesting because that's how I adapted. Um, and, you know, complaining, complaining sometimes is the only voice you're allowed to kind of have. Um, and then, you know, obviously, please, sorry. You know, you're, you're respectful. You're told that these are the ways to kind of do things. So um, do you have anything to add to everything here? Well,
0: I, I'm just thinking about, the format of your podcast of the survivor stories, where you start in the beginning about who we were prior to the relationship, where we came from, what shaped us. And I've really started paying attention to the details of that. And it it almost, it, it almost feels like a bit of foreshadowing to the kind of thing you're, you might be susceptible to. And so when I think about the subordinate child, who is someone who apologizes and makes amends and, you know, concedes, Uh, complaining is the only voice you have. When I think about um, the subordination of women in our culture or uh, visible minorities, when I think about the subordination of people within the organized church, I am struck by the number of people whose stories begin with time in some sort of religious group and how, you know, just, we've been, we've been trained to submit and to subordinate. And so in a lot of ways, half the narcissist work is already done for them because we already come in conditioned uh, to make those kinds of concessions. So um, it, that, that vulnerability is, I think, really important uh, as a, a healing strategy. I think it's important as a coping strategy if you're still in it. And I think it's a, an important thing to be thinking about before we get into our next relationships. Um, I'll, I'll just, is Is it okay if I just segue from there? Yeah, go for it. So just to sort of hammer home some of the strategies to use, um, if, if we're still in it, is is to be aware, as I said, of the hooks, the things that, that get us hooked in, even though we're determined not to power struggle again, and the hook just gets baited in the right way, and we, we take it. Um, another important thing, uh, is to pay attention to what are, are called the discounts that's what it's called in ta therapy, but that's just uh, ta for uh, gaslighting. So it's a way of saying discounting reality. Um, so let's let's maybe do a script where there's some discounting going on discounting of reality and uh, let's do Hannah who.
1: All right. all right so the con- what's the context of a Hannah the Hannah who story?
0: Here's the Hannah who. Um, I had just gone for a walk with a friend whose name was Danielle. What I didn't know is that Andy's friend just lost her husband. Andy's in Toronto. I'm out at the lake. And so I received this text accidentally. And what I know is that the text was actually intended for wife number one. Um, her name is Sarah. This text was intended for Sarah and Andy accidentally sent it to me. So you might anticipate here, because she's a narcissist, um, avoiding taking responsibility for that. That might be the purpose of this game, Um, but there might also be other games that she's playing. So be listening for my attempts to be an adult and how I slip into a child role eventually. So this is the text I get out of the blue.
1: And I'm Andy, and here I go. How's Hannah doing?
0: Hannah who? Her name is Danielle.
1: What are you talking about?
0: Well, I just went for a walk. I, I was walking with Danielle.
1: I know that.
0: Well, the, well, then why did you ask about Hannah? And it, here it's it's likely that Andy realizes she's made a mistake and that she's actually meaning to, to text this to
1: Sarah. Because her husband just died, Jesus! I thought you'd want to know. Wait,
0: what? Tony died? Oh my God!
1: I thought you'd want to know. Guess I was wrong. No,
0: wait! Don't don't say that. I I do want to know. I I'm just wondering why you asked how Hannah was doing. I I don't even really know her.
1: Oh, and that's my fault,
0: oh my God! Why did you ask me how she's doing? How do you
1: think she's doing? She's planning a funeral. Oh
0: my God. Look, I'm not sure what's going on here, but please give Hannah my love um how's How's Sarah doing with all this?
1: Oh, here we go, yes. I'm going to the funeral with Sarah. Yes, we're driving in the same car. And yes, we're taking Hannah to the beach house for the weekend. And I'm, I don't respond. What? I suppose you're upset now.
0: Um, yeah, I am. Sad face.
1: <laughs> Everything will be okay, lover. You're my one and only. Okay, I love you. End scene. End scene. So wow, so much happened here. So, you know, I, you, you know, I guess you're going to ask me the question, or, you know, where did it, where was all the rules kind of going in here?
0: Yeah, let's analyze it.
1: So when you really break this down, um you know right when she realized that this was not who she thought she was talking to she she chose her point right there to pick the fight with you just to pick a fight with you when she was like because her husband died jesus in, in a way to most likely deflect from the fact that you know the other communication is kind of going on and that's when uh, she has you immediately here you know you're you've been like you got hooked in pretty quickly and you're defending yourself and you're justifying yourself and then uh after you're kind of going through a lot of um grasping at straws to try and get yourself out of a situation that you never created in the first place. Usually when people are grasping at straws, they're the one that, they're the one that created the situation in the first place. And they're trying to backpedal to get themselves out of it. But you're backpedaling here to get yourself out of a situation that was created by someone else. And then they become the domineering parent when you're doing that. and, And Andy says, Oh, and that's my fault. And all of a sudden, They're up here and you're down here. You try to answer her on a level thing, uh, asking like a real rational question, which is why did you ask me how she's doing? And then once again, you know, very condescending, uh, like the sarcasm of questions in a way, like um, which is... How do you think she's doing? It's like a rhetorical question. Um, and, you know, she's planning a funeral as if you're stupid. You know, and mm-hmm. then uh, kind of again, you try and give uh, the answer of like, "Look, I'm not sure what just happened here. You are actually being an adult here. You're trying to figure things out on a on a real level playing field." She wants none of it, and then goes more into the. Um, not just domineering, but belligerent kind of um, bringing in all of your old conversations and arguments as if you're a crazy person. Here we go again. Yeah. As if it's oh, always... Wow. I hadn't thought of that. As, as if it's always you. Um, yes, I'm going to the funeral with Sarah. And now she's telling you everything. She's There's no... There's no even Steven here. Now she's the apparent here who's telling you what she's doing and you can't do anything about it because I am the parent and you are the child and you have your role and this is my role. And it's yes, we're driving here. And we're in the same car. Yes, we're taking hand to the beach house. Yes, 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 yes. And at that point, you're speechless And then she digs at you with what, uh, I suppose you're upset now, like, uh, attacking your feelings Mm -hmm. in this situation, Mm -hmm. like, you know, making you in your, your feelings invalidated. And then, uh, Erica, uh, which is you, you say, yes, I am, but it's not from a place of, When you hear your voice do it, it's not from a place of, yes, that's true. It's from a real childhood hurt place. And then once she hears the childhood hurt, she comes in here as the soothing, nurturing parent in here. As a way to control the situation. So she's come in here, created the situation, hurt you in the process, comes in, swoops in another form of control and cares for you, Mm -hmm. which becomes even trickier to figure out. And at the end, you tell her that you love her. And if that isn't a mind fuck, I don't know what is.
0: It's it's so amazing, Brandon. You're such a counselor. Like for you to analyze this with me and hold up the mirror and, and let me hear and see it back is just so powerful. Um, and any good therapist will do what you just did.
1: So it, it's, it's really interesting um, to look at these things from the parent-child role and uh, how these things are um, meant to make you feel and how they're using uh, these rules, specific roles here to, uh, manipulate you from both ends, from both ends of the parent spectrum, how one, it's like they can play good cop, they can play bad cop and all in, all in one fair swoop. And that they can create the situation and then they can fix the situation.
0: Yeah. Isn't that the truth? And you, you said that one time in another episode where you, I think it was the burning building analogy where you said, you know, this person set the fire and then, and then invites you to help put the fire out. And that sort of set him up, knock them down. And that's the game. That's the gamey part of transactional analysis. And uh, I'll just give you a little hint about what my hook in the, in the Hannah Who story. Uh, my hook is the fact that Hannah is a dear friend of Sarah and Andy, right? Like wife number one, Hannah is a dear friend of them. And I have wanted to be included in that group of friends for a long time. And one of the things that I'm fearful of is that Andy will paint me out to be um, an asshole or an insensitive person, um, you know, and would gossip about me in that way, like, oh my God, like your husband died and, Erica doesn't even care. Like, and then it just to exclude me even further. So I, I didn't want that narrative to happen. That's always an underlying threat. And so in order to run interference on that, um, I very genuinely said, you know, please give Hannah my love and how is Sarah doing? Like I want to show that I'm compassionate. So it, I, it's so important. I think in surviving these relationships to know what our hooks are and the Enneagram is is one way, I think, if, if you need a shortcut into what our motivation might, might be and what our vulnerabilities are. Um, my favorite free Enneagram um, analysis tool is on the website Eclectic Energies. Um, it's just a, a free screener to tell you what number you might be. Um, and because it's free, they don't send you a report. So I, I always screenshot it when I've done it. Um, so just if I can, just really quickly, you know, a type one might have the hook that says, um, I have to be perfect. I need to be morally right. I have to be seen as a good person. And if, you, if the narcissist suggests at all that you're not, that you're morally defective um, somehow, that you'll, you'll take that bait. Um, A type two might be hooked by the idea that you're not being very helpful. Um, I thought you were, I thought you were a helpful person. I thought you were caring. Take the bait. A type three might be motivated by the appearance of success or accomplishment. And if, if the narcissist suggests at all that you're somehow a failure, that might be the big juicy worm that you take. A type four, um, might um, pride themselves in being having emotional depth and um, creativity and individuality. And the best insult from a narcissist is that you're, you're nobody, you're just average. A type five prides themselves in being intelligent and being informed. And so if a narcissist undercuts your intelligence at all and questions what you know, and that you somehow have flawed knowledge and you're actually quite stupid you might find yourself in a power struggle with, with them. A type six is, is so motivated by, um, you know, a deep sense of loyalty and survival happens because we stick together. And so to be threatened with, you know, expulsion from the group or, or a lack of safety, living without support, like the threat of you're going to be on the street might be the hook that a six needs, Um, Type seven, there's nine types, <laughs> you know, I'm just about done. Type seven um, is, is, we know, is a, is a type that's motivated to avoid pain. And so some of their activities, their adventure and their substance use and their, uh, their spontaneity is, is, in a lot of ways, an avoidance of pain. And we know that a narcissist can inflict tremendous pain in our lives. And that might be the hook that, that gets us um, engaged in a power struggle. I'm a type eight, I'm, I'm motivated to be strong. I'm terrified of vulnerability. And yet I take that bait all the time and find myself as a subordinate child. And a, a type nine is motivated by status quo, like by equilibrium. And so just in order to get out of the chaos of a conflict with a narcissist, you know, a type, a type nine might just slip into a complementary role in order to avoid the discomfort of that. So anyway, in transactional analysis, if we're aware of our hooks, we can sometimes understand why we got baited.
1: And for everyone listening, if you have text conversations like these and you have them saved uh, or you have letters that were sent to you that were along the same lines, please send them uh, into me because uh, Vienna, from many of the episodes we've done before, uh, we're hopefully going to be doing some test episodes, taking like the letters and the, and, and the the conversations the text conversations that you 've had, and we 're going to try and help uh, break them all down for you, so if you 're having specific issues, we can do our best to help you out while that if you also just want to send them in so other people can learn from them, so we can do breakdowns we 're going to hopefully have a lot more future episodes where we 're going to be using uh, these these letters and your text conversations to help everyone. Um, understand their situations a bit more, figure out the language that everyone is is using. It might not always be these parental transactional analysis things. It might be other ways that they're they're doing things. But we think it'll be really helpful. So if you want to help us out to help you, please uh, you know send us uh, all your stuff at uh, narcissistapocalypse at gmail dot com, and put you know um, I guess uh, letters or texts you know for. A uh, text analysis episode in in the subject line, and uh, thank you in advance way in advance and now we are going to just do one more, everyone, one more, and then we 're going to call it a day so uh, what's, what what script can I do my bad acting from let 's do let 's
0: do the red roof.
1: The red roof. Here we go. Give us the context of the red roof.
0: Okay. The context for the red roof is I am just standing in the kitchen yammering about my friend's condo. Um, she's a colleague. Her name is Francesca. I really admire her. I love her career. Um, I've seen pictures of her condo. I haven't actually seen it, but I just, I really like the way she lives. And I haven't noticed that Andy has become agitated. This conversation isn't texted. This actually happened in person. So I'm saying, I just love Francesca's new place. It overlooks the wharf and she jogs through the bird sanctuary. Did you know that she's preparing for like a 10K?
1: Whatever. I wasn't impressed.
0: Oh, you you know it? You know the condo?
1: Yes, I know it. It's the one with the red roof. I was looking at it. Actually, I met with the realtor, but your Francesca wanted it, so I I withdrew my offer.
0: When on earth did you make an offer on a condo? She just bought it like six months ago.
1: I mean, if you like a red roof, be my guest.
0: Okay, I, I don't know anything about the roof. I'm I'm just curious when you looked at it.
1: Oh, here we go. Why do you believe nothing, I say? Why do you always need proof? You don't think it has a red roof. Get in the car. Let's go for a drive.
0: So Andy drives right past Francesca's condo. We're in the neighborhood, but she drives right past it. And she pulls in front of a condo with a red roof.
1: See? Red roof.
0: Yep. That's a red roof. But it's not Francesca's.
1: I never said it was.
0: Uh, okay, what? You did. You said I looked at Francesca's condo, I withdrew my opera and it had a red roof.
1: Exactly. Exactly what? Don't raise your voice at me. You don't talk to me like that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for yelling. I'm sorry. Want to go get breakfast? Yes, please. End scene.
0: So one more analysis.
1: Okay, so here's the analysis. First, she's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you caught her in a lie. Yeah, that's right. And once you caught her in the lie, she didn't... Answer it. She avoided it as if to not lie. You know, at that point, you know, she wanted to still prove you wrong. But at the same time, she lied by omission and then forcefully tried to think you were stupid by going someplace else (laughs) and tried to convince you and gaslight you of... Um, you know, is the, the, when she becomes the parent in this situation, red roof, as if their word is the gospel and that you shouldn't say anything back. But of course your logic steps in, you're the adult in this conversation. Now you logically answer her and then she gaslights you. And then you try to logically answer back again. she It's not a gaslighting. It's a gaslighting. It's a a runaround as if she's hoping you just let it go, which you are not letting it go. And when you're not letting it go, the parent comes into the situation and says, don't you raise your voice at me, you know? And so what she's saying is here, you know, I'm always right, you're always wrong. Even when I'm lying, I am right and you are wrong. I am the adult and you are the child. What I say goes. If I say it's blue, it's blue, even though it's black. It doesn't matter. The sky's the sky's yellow. It's blue. Doesn't matter. It's yellow. And then At that point, once she becomes that domineering parent, you become the child and you start apologizing. You're the adapted child here. And then at that point, she becomes, as soon as you go into that, that child and you apologize and you, and you say, um, at this point, yes, yes, parent, I'm sorry. She changes from that. She's happy with herself, comes in once again, swoops in as the controlling, nurturing parent. Let me take you for breakfast. Yeah. And then you I, say- Take
0: me for breakfast. It's her way of saying, I buy breakfast.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, yes, please. And very much a childlike role. And again, this happens again. She comes in, um, try, like tries to lie, gaslight, everything under the sun here comes out she uses her strategy of extreme adult you fall for it you, you try and maintain yourself as much as you can and then when it isn't working when you're not leaving it alone she when you're not yeah when you're not leaving it alone she comes in and puts the hammer down and when she put that hammer down you dropped and when that dropped she as soon as that drops she comes in as the other parent cares it, makes it okay. And like, you're just a shell of yourself.
0: Exactly. So just the the little glimpse behind the scenes around my, my hook, there's a hook in this for me and I took the bait. Um, And, and Andy also has agenda. And I think that's the important thing in the analysis of, of these dialogues is understanding the narcissist agenda and I don't, I don't know if it's clear here, but I really admire Francesca. I love her life. I love her career. I have a lot of respect for her. She's gorgeous. Um, and, you know, she's a runner, and, and I, I love all of that. And I wouldn't say I'm attracted to her, but it's enough to threaten Andy. So Andy's superiority in putting in an offer and withdrawing the offer is like, you know, she's some big, you know, charitable person or somebody with investment properties and she's not, but it's, it's like, I'm better than Francesca. Um, don't, don't worry yourself about her. Let's put her down so that you stay in love with me. And that's absolutely the agenda behind this game, which I think might be a segue to another conversation that we'll have at another time where in my opinion, um, these games, these verbal games that narcissists play typically serve one of three purposes. It They, they typically serve to isolate us and to se- separate us from, from supportive people. They serve the purpose of um, silencing us and keeping the story quiet and not expressing what we're living with behind closed doors. And thirdly, um, these games often serve the purpose of creating mental confusion. And in my opinion, Those are the three conditions that make narcissistic abuse possible, that when we are isolated, when we are silenced, and we are so mind fucked that we don't even know how to spell our own name, that that's when the real narcissistic abuse starts, because the conditions are perfect for it.
1: Well, Erica, I want to thank you for being here with me today. I had a wonderful time. You did a a great job of explaining all these things to to everyone, uh, giving people another tool in their tool belt, uh, for what they're dealing with, uh, and future relationships. So really a big thank you for, for being here with me today.
0: Thanks for having me back. I I appreciate the question. Um, what words of wisdom do you have? And I appreciate the opportunity to answer that question in a full hour. So thank you.
1: Well, you're welcome. And now, before we end off our show, let me tell you, if you want to be a guest on our show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page. There's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to a form. It takes you to a page where you can fill out the form or you can send us an email from that page. And there's all these instructions on what we're looking for as far as the outline of your story to be on our show. So please do click on that guest form. We're always looking for stories and a way we will go from there. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. We have our very own safe social network. So at the top of the page, there's a button that says support group. And if you click on that button, it takes you to our social network. And inside here, we have our very own forums. We have Zoom support meetings every Wednesdays and Saturdays. We have uh, ad-free episodes. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have groups that discuss codependency. We have groups that discuss relationships. And you can branch off into any group you want to while you are there. If you want to just support the show... That's where you would go just to sign up to the support group. You don't even have to be involved. You just want to support the show. Go there as well. It helps us out a lot. So if you want to support the show or you just want to get extra support, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says support group. And if you need even more support than what we have, please do go to domesticshelters.org. Yes, at domesticshelters.org, you have articles you have resources you have a whole list of every single shelter there is out there if you're looking for uh, resources that you really need uh, when it comes to to these things please do go to domesticshelters.org they have local resources they have ways for you to heal and move forward and for you to understand what you're experiencing as well so please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource and before we're done here. I just want to thank everyone. This is the end of the year. And, uh, you know, everyone, you might be doing well, you might not be doing well. So we're just sending all of our positive vibes and big hugs to everyone as we bring in the new year and hope for a, a much better 2000 and, and Twenty-two. So a big thank you to all of our listeners, to all the guests that we had this year, uh, the ones that made it to air and the ones that didn't make it to air. A big thank you to everyone for sharing their experiences with me and for all of you as well. So for Erica and I today, we hope you have a good night.